All right, everybody, welcome back. This is the second part of our Parasites talk. Now we're going to be talking about helminths. Again, with uh, Dr. Jack Schneider, we really appreciate you coming back and helping us out with this as well, so welcome back. Well, gosh, David, I can't believe you invited me back because I thought the first session put everybody else to sleep, right? Well, the the jury's still out on that. (laughs) We'll find out. (laughs) All right, so like we did with our first section, we're going to go ahead and lead things in with a question just to kind of get the ball rolling on this topic. So, Dr. Schneider, we have a three-year-old boy whose family recently immigrated from Myanmar. Um, He's coming into the office with a three-month history of increasing crampy abdominal pain, vomiting, and constipation. He's had a four-pound weight loss, and his mom brought you in several worms that she noticed in his emesis. Now, there is a picture associated with this question, um, but they basically look, uh, I guess, kind of like earthworms. Um, Otherwise, he is has a pretty benign uh, exam other than some distension without organomegaly on his uh, abdomen, um, and he has some kind of diffuse tenderness. Now, of these choices, which is the most likely to be causing his problem? Would it be Ascaris, Intumeba, Interobius, Giardia, or Trichuris? Trichuris. Um, Trichuris trichuria is known as the whipworm, but um, really... This is not um, a case of whipworm. When you told me that he was from Myanmar, so considering travel history, and that he was vomiting up um, at least these huge kind of, you know, earthworm-like, I liked your description with that too, um, worms, I would go straight to Ascaris Ascaris lumbricoides. Um, The reason why I say that is just because Ascaris is the largest intestinal roundworm um, that infects humans, and they're generally about 20 to 40 centimeters long. Um, and uh, we just generally see a little bit more Ascaris. Um, they have a very characteristic look to them, and also the eggs have a characteristic look too. So from a microbiology standpoint, when you see an Ascaris egg, you'll never forget it. So um, it's hard to describe, at least through here. You just have to see it to really know kind of what it looks like, uh, but very characteristic. But these are also patients, they have like huge worm burdens, right? Absolutely. Like they're just coming out of all of the orifices. Exactly, and then um, what is interesting is that these worms, after they embed themselves within the intestinal wall, um, they uh, they kind of cut through, or um, not the intestinal wall, but they can actually cut through kind of the alveolar wall as well. Um, and when they do that, they can go up to the respiratory tree um, into the epiglottis, and then they are actually reinfected because they swallow those. Um, and uh, during this period of going through the lungs, patients frequently have this cough, fever, and they can even have rails. And what I think is really important, at least for Ascaris, is um, hemoptysis can occur. So if you would have told me hemoptysis too with worms, I probably would have honed in right again on Ascaris just because um, when you see like, um, I think the characteristic results or imaging they'll give you is a shifting infiltrate with a patient like this. If it's a shifting infiltrate um, and they have a high eosinophil count with this organism, you start thinking of a certain syndrome. I want you to remember this syndrome. Um, and uh, David, do you remember which syndrome that is when you have hemoptysis associated with Ascaris and shifting infiltrates? Um, do you remember what that's called? Yes, I actually did. It was Loeffler syndrome. Loeffler syndrome. And I want you to remember that too because it's very characteristic to Ascaris. Um, but the next question is, yeah, clearly figured it out that it's Ascaris, but how do you diagnose it? Um, really the best way to, di- to, to diagnose this is by finding the eggs or worms in the stool. Clearly, they'll, they generally have a high eosinophil count. 
Um, but you will see those characteristic eggs or even the worm itself. So a good parasitologist can actually look at that worm and say, yeah, that looks like a scarus. Um, but then what about treatment? So with all of these... Bendazole. Mebendazole, <laughs> yep. Me, me, me. Um, we just say mebendazole, albendazole. It just depends on what's available at your institution. Ivermectin can also be used too. Um, I would just remember those three. Um, mebendazole, albendazole, or ivermectin. Um, to be honest, I think most of the time you'll actually see mebendazole um, on there, so always choose that. Uh, but those are the three options for it. So, no. Pretty good. I don't know if you if if you were able to see a picture of a scarce, you wouldn't forget it. But um, actually, a quite common thing that you can't see for a returning traveler or a new immigrant as well. And when we publish the episode, we will uh, put some beautiful worm pictures on Twitter for you. So if you're not following us at Peds in a Pod, just a little extra plug there. Um, we'll post some pictures after this episode gets published. Don't you agree that the ID section has to be the best, right? Just for it's very, very. There visual. are some fantastic pictures. <laughs> Clearly, I'm biased, though, right? Um, but. Uh, David, I think that was a great question to lead us into this section or the second part of this parasitology um, talk. Um, and that gets us into, remember, last section we talked about the classification of parasites. And David, do you remember which two that we actually divided or the big kind of at least classification groups that we put them into initially? What were those two again? Yep. So we talked about protozoa in our last talk and then helminths were our other talk, which we're going to talk about today. Yep. And so helminths, in contrast to protozoa, do they replicate within the body or um, outside the body? Uh, these are the ones that are going to replicate outside the body. Good. The only exception to that is strongyloides, which we'll get to. Fair. Um, now, I know we just talked about this in this question. Are Do the helminths have eosinophilia or do the protozoa? The helminths. The helminths. We're going to be looking for the eosinophilia with the helminths. Good. And uh, how we divide the helminths up, when I think of, um, we call them the, um, <laughs> the nema, you know, at least or the nemethelminths. Um, these are the nematodes and the roundworms, um, and this is within the helminth group. Um, those roundworms, these include pinworms, hookworms, whipworms, strongyloides, ascaris. Um, these are the ones you're probably more, you know, at least familiar with. Um, but then you also get into the platyhelminths. And when I, when I think of platy, I think of like a platypus, right? They've got like a flat beak. Flat, yeah. So think of flat, um, very, I, yeah, they're basically flat worms. Um, and these are your cestodes, which are tapeworms, and your trematodes, which are your flukes. Nice and um, flat. Yeah, exactly. So um, it's not as involved as our last group we talked about with the protozoa, um, but uh, <laughs> at least to see some of these, at least un under the microscope and see some of these infections, you won't forget them when you see them. So um, I think we already talked about Ascaris, so I don't think we need to really go into that in any further detail. We covered that with the Perfect. question that David looked at. Um, but I think at least going forward too, just to give you a quick overview of the helminth infections, I know I kind of divided or divided them up for you. Um, compared to the protozoa, these are multicellular worms um, that again, as um, David uh, mentioned, they don't replicate in the body, um, but they do cause eosinophilia. Um, and then we went through at least all of the um, different types, dividing them up into roundworms and then the flatworms too. So um, all that being said, Moving on past um, Ascaris, let's go to pinworms. Pinworms is a really... David, how many cases of pinworm have you seen in the ER? 
Well, I was going to say, I've never actually seen them, but I've definitely <laughs> treated cases of pinworm in the ER. Yes, and I think that is key, and I'm glad you brought that up, because when do you actually see the pinworms? So, if you guys go back and listen to the talk with Dr. Jones on primary care, we actually discussed this, and it is around 11 p.m. at night they typically come out, <laughs> per, per Dr. Jones, who has been doing this for very many years. Um, if you have something additional to add, but this was one of his rules was... Uh, the parents, uh, you know, they, we talk about scotch tape test and all that good jazz, but apparently they come out in the middle of the night. Yes, and I think that's that's a good point. Most of the time, that's the your best luck with getting these um, worms. Um, in fact, I had a patient um, with pinworm with recurrent infections of pinworm, um, and uh, they even the mother described to me that she was like, "Oh, they're like little white worms," is how she described them, and she was like. Yeah, I just go and, you know, my, you know, her, um, her, her daughter was saying, oh yes, it's just very itchy. She also had anal and the vulvar itching, which was very characteristic to um, Enterobius vermicularis or pinworm. Um, and mom said that she went in to check, and when she checked around her rectum, she actually saw the worms, and then they went right back into her rectum. I know it's really difficult to talk about, but this is exactly how the parents describe it too. So they're very hard to actually, you know, at least. Pinworm, a.k.a. peekaboo worm. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's the truth. It's the truth. Um, and what's interesting, too, is that everybody talks about the scotch tape test. Um, and to be honest, you can get very creative with scotch tape tests. Um, I always look to you know guidance, at least from Dr. Christensen, who is the head of our department. Um, and he actually... Um, you know, at least for him, he has special ways of like even wrapping them around like a pencil and so forth too. We actually have pinworm collection, um, you know, at least kits. So it's actually an easy little um, device you can insert into the rectum and it's actually covered with adhesive. So you don't have to, because of course, how, how in the heck are you going to have like a piece of tape and try to actually kind of at least tape it on the rectum and then pull it off? It's just going to be painful, right? So this is actually a little device that you can insert into the rectum and has adhesive. Um, uh, and you can actually extract um, at least the worms from that. And it actually worked with this particular patient, and we were able to send it to the parasitology lab and identify it as pinworm. The whole experience seems very unpleasant, regardless <laughs> on how we're uh, get, getting our sample. Oh, I know, I know. And we can move on from that just to say that, yes, there is such a thing as tape, you know, at least a scotch tape test, and there's better ways of doing it. Just know that it's very treatable, um, but it can be spread easily because eggs can survive up to three weeks. And these are ingested from fingernails, bedding, toys, and other surfaces. Um, Auto-infection occurs. um, It's pretty widespread. And I have a terrible habit of biting my nails. So just think when I was a kid, too. um, Think of all the kids, too, that bite their nails, and they can actually ingest those eggs from it. Um, So unfortunately, when you think of kids, they really don't wash their hands. It's more fecal-oral. And then, so one way that they can ingest these. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, as we kind of alluded to, di- or the diagnosis can be made by either visualizing the adult worms on the perineum at night or placing that piece of transparent tape or that special device that we talked about too. Um, and uh, to be honest, you know, with Dr. Jones, he mentioned at night, we also say early in the morning as well can be a good time to do that as well. And we usually do that just like what we did with our stool samples with some parasites. We do this for three consecutive days just to see if we can increase the yield of detecting these. Um, as for treatment, albendazole um, is the big treatment that I think that they'll actually talk to you about. Um, usually a single dose is admin- or administered, and then you do a repeat dose in two weeks. Um, you know, I guess you could throw in mebendazole as well, um, but just know that it does require two doses. Um, 
and uh, yes, and um, what I what I think is an important um, bit of information to bring up is if somebody has pinworm, they get the treatment. But what about the rest of the family? Do they need treatment? Because clearly we've been talking about how easily it's transmitted and that eggs can survive for quite some time. So do you treat the family, David? Do you know? I think that you have to treat the family in this you case. You do. You do. So they should. Um, you, you actually treat all the family members, and that's not just the family members. It's those that they're in close contact with. So the, my particular patient w- stayed at her grandma all day. So what we actually advised him to do because she kept, get re- kept getting reinfected was to actually treat all of the family and her grandmother and those that she was in close contact with. But not only that, um, but also stressing morning bathing, frequent washing of bed clothes, and excellent hand washing. Um, and we actually advise them to basically go home and, you know, clean that house. Burn everything. <laughs> <laughs> it was that, you know, yeah. um, oh, we can't tell people that. I know, we can't tell people that. But uh, it's, um, to be honest, you, you, you want to make sure that you wash your sheets well, wash everything. Um, sometimes it can be uh, pretty persistent. So I, have, I do not know of any resistant cases to some of these medications we talked about. So if they come back and they have another case of, you know, pinworm, Treat them the same, but you make sure that you really stress the importance of making sure all the family members are treated and um, also that, uh, you know, certain things are cleaned up around the house and not only their house, but also homes and places where the kids um, who are infected spend a lot of time at. So we talked about the roundworm. We talked about the pinworm. Now, I think the next one is the hookworm. Yeah, the hookworm. So um, another name for this is Nicator americanus. Um, and uh, this, what's interesting about hookworm is it always associates anemia and weakness. Um, another thing that you may, you know, see, um, it's cutaneous larva migrants. And um, I, you know, this is something that I have not seen, but I've seen pictures of, and it's pretty characteristic to this. Um, what I think that is really important to know too, and this could be from a developmental peed standpoint, is with um, hookworm. If they have anemia, you can also see some eosinophilia here. Um, these patients can have failure, or they can have failure to thrive just because of the um, anemia itself, and if they're infected at a young age. Um, so I think that is really the important part. You can treat these patients with albendazole um, or mebendazole too. Um, so think hookworm. Um, cutaneous uh, larva migraines and uh, no specifically now in, in adults it's a little bit different for peds think failure to thrive in anemia alright very okay. good um, another shape worm another shape worm is the whip worm so I know we talked about the hook worm the whip worm um, if you've seen a picture of this I don't know are you a family guy fan David? I do watch some family guy from time to time so Stewie has a very characteristic head right yes and so trichura or trichurus trichuria this is the whip worm and if you look at a characteristic egg of this, you know, I'll have to show you after we're finished here since we don't have one right now. It reminds me of a Stewie head. <laughs> and I always think that he basically whips people into shape, right? Um, at least on Family Guy. So when I see um, the whipworm um, and the characteristic eggs associated with it, I think of Stewie from Family Guy that he's whipping people in shape. I and can't <laughs> wait to make the meme of that to post on Twitter <laughs> with Stewie's head and a whipworm together. This um, is going to happen. Oh, I can't. I can't wait to see it. So, um, But uh, actually what's interesting is that um, it can be regional um, within the U.S. and it's mostly, um, it's most predominant in the southern U.S. Um, and you actually ingest the eggs and this is what causes it. Um, sometimes it's just, um, you know, patients are asymptomatic. Um, they may have fever. They may have blood streak stools. But what I think is really important to know and that will come up on ID boards is rectal prolapse. So if you hear rectal prolapse you start and you think it's infectious causes, you start thinking of whipworm. But, David, do you know another one that I'm thinking of with rectal prolapse with chronic diarrhea? 
Mm, yes, Shigella. Shigella's one too. Yeah. So I think that's, you know, we're doing a little bit of cross training there, but uh, think Shigella for rectal prolapse and even with whipworm. Um, I think this is absolutely fair game for the boards, and I'm pretty sure I've done prep questions that <laughs> that may or may not have talked about pro, rectal prolapse. So uh, I, I think that's definitely a good word association to have with uh, whipworm or trichuris. Good. Um, the same thing is with all the other um, the parasitic infections we talked about. Di- you diagnose it with finding the eggs in the stool. Um, you can treat with albendazole or ivermectin. You only really need three days of um, you know treatment, which you know I we've gone through all these treatments pretty quickly. But as you you can probably recall, and you probably have seen this tendency of not really long treatment. It's not like our other antibiotics for other bacterial infections, right? Where it could be a week, two weeks, three weeks. Um, for these parasitic infections, you usually treat them. Um, just for a few days, usually not that long. Now, granted, Giardia is a different a different story. Sure, um, but um, some of the others you usually just treat very quickly, and they and they get better. Uh-huh. So, um, well, so I think David, we talked about um, you know we're still within the helminths, um, and the next group that we were going to look at, we talked about you know at least the roundworms. We talked about pinworms, hookworms, whipworms. Well, what else is part of these um, roundworms? Um, of the helminth group. And I think one to bring up is uh, trichinosis, which is uh, um, trichinella spiralis. Um, and what do you know about um, trichinella spiralis? Anything come to mind for you? That it is associated with eating pork? Yeah, pork, and more specifically, and for our listeners out there, if you have a case um, where you think that it's a parasitic infection, and they start talking about exotic meats like bear <laughs> and horse and even like walrus and mm, seals. Delicious. I always get the bear. So it's usually out west. Somebody is eating bear. Um, and then they start complaining of, you know, at least whether it be myalgias, just because they it really does cause muscle pain um, because it does actually insist within the muscle tissue itself. Um, and these patients have eosinophilia. Then I start thinking it's trigonella. Um, and uh, trichinella, um, at least with diagnosis, it's still the same. You can actually do serologies on this, but also look for, um, um, or compared to the others, it's serologies, but you can also do a biopsy and actually look at the trichinella itself. Um, and you still treat with the same with mebendazole or albendazole. Uh, for severe disease, sometimes you can even see this in the brain, which may come up, and that's when you really need to incorporate, or when you um, need to add corticosteroids too. So... Have you had any exotic meats before? Uh, I've had kangaroo. Does that count as exotic? I, I, absolutely, it does. <laughs> um, to be honest, I, I guess I, yeah, for, for me, I kind of at least, I need to branch out and, you know, eat a little bit more exotic foods. I think kangaroo is very exotic, but I don't know of any infections associated with it. So, Excellent. Um, just know, be careful with all these other, you know, at least um, meats, a variety of them too, and just think of trichinella too. So, like I said, that's the worst part about ID is that sometimes it really turns people off from what they truly love, right? <laughs> Whether it be what they eat, what they do. I can't so, eat raspberries. I can't eat bear. I mean, you're taking all the good things away from me. You can't, you know, do freshwater activities in the, you know, in the fear that, gosh, am I going to pick up cryptosporidium? Or if you're out in some lake, you're going to pick up leptospirosis or something. Oh, just doesn't make anything fun, right? You can't travel because <laughs> you come back with malaria um, or some of these other things we talked about. Yeah. That's why we're around, right? Amen. Um, so, you know, we talked about, so trichinella. Um, now the other one is that I just want to... Um, bring up is uh, filariasis, and this is a very fun word to say, um, whoosh area. Whoosh area? One Can more time? Say? Whoosh area? Whoosh area. 
whoosh air area. All Barcrofty. Right. Yep. And this is actually transmitted by a mosquito. Um, and it causes lymphatic filariasis. And it causes characteristic lymphatic blockage. And this is where you get that secondary elephantiasis. Mm. Um, and these are... Many good pictures of oh, that. I know, right? Um, so... Uh, <laughs> You know, with this, you can actually diagnose it with the micro um, filare with actually in the bloodstream too. Um, and you treat with a special medication called diethylcarbamazine um, citrate or DEC. And you do this in combination with the albendazole or ivermectin. To be honest, for our audience, the likelihood of them asking about Wushisharia, um, it is not going to happen. I just don't see it being fair because you just don't see it that often. Um, and I just don't think it's relevant here. For It's more for um, ID boards. Now, for the next organism we're going to talk about, strongyloides, very, very pertinent. Um, and this is common in certain parts of the U.S. and also very common in South America and Southeast Asia. Um, so what's interesting is that um, it is virtually the only helminth um, organism that replicates within the body. Remember how we talked about, David, I kept going back and saying which ones have eosinophilia, which ones don't. This one particularly, um, you know, this... Helminths really don't um, replicate within the body, but this one does. Um, and so since it does replicate within the body, it auto-infects, and this can persist for years. And I mm-hmm. think that's important to know. Um, most of the symptoms um, are GI-related, um, but there can be some pulmonary you know, symptoms as well. Um, and uh, eosinophilia is sky-high with these patients too. Um, and so sometimes you'll also get this, it's called a serpiginous rash with erythematous tracts and characteristic of strongyloides too. Um, what I think actually, to be honest, after kind of going through this and talking about it, the most important thing that at least we see from an ID perspective and what comes up on our prep questions and, you know, even on the adult side too, is, um, strongyloides in, or in immunosuppressed patients. And these immunosuppressed patients, they can actually develop potentially fatal um, disseminated strong or strongyloides, um, and they call it um, hyperinfection. And um, this is where they have abdominal pain, they have distension, and they have neuro and pulmonary symptoms. Um, and these patients get very sick. So sometimes, if they have a very high, you know, IgE count, um, or I shouldn't say IgE, but if they have a high eosinophilia. Um, or eosinophilic count, excuse me, um, and they have CNS lesions, sometimes we'll be put in that, you know, situation where, you know, sometimes the hemoc docs think, well, is this malignancy or is it truly a parasitic infection? Sometimes we want tissue. Sometimes we will wait for those too because sometimes if you give steroids um, just to help with the CNS lesions, that actually causes a full disseminated, you know, at least infection. That's why they call it hyperinfection. So you really need to be careful. Um, and sometimes it's that uh, kind of making the best decision for the patient on if you truly think that this is widespread, you know, strongyloides, how do you treat these patients? Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's difficult to say. You actually treat with ivermectin, so it's pretty straightforward. But sometimes when there's CNS lesions and you think there could be something else going on, um, you do want to give steroids, and sometimes you don't. So, um, but this is one that bendazoles don't work, right? Ivermectin yeah, is the treatment. Of ivermectin choice. is the treatment of choice. You're absolutely right. So, um, some step one knowledge coming back. There you go. So, strongyloides think of this hyperinfection, um, the eosinophilia, um, treating with ivermectin. Um, now, the last one for roundworms, um, Toxicara canis. Um, 
this is one that causes visceral larva migraines. Remember how we talked about that? What was that other one that we talked about with cutaneous? Um, I think that actually, was that on our last section? It was. Um, David, we talked about where we actually, I think it was cutaneous larva migraines. Um, and which one was that associated with again? That, that was, was that was the uh, hookworm that or was the, the nicator. Yeah, nicator americanus. Um, so compare that with um, the visceral larva migraines, which is toxicara. Um, sometimes you get retinal involvement with this, but it's mostly something that you see in dogs. Um, so, you know, for the buzzword, at least for PEDS patients, is this migratory pneumonia, um, any eosinophilia. Uh, but to be honest, um, I, you probably won't be tested on this. It's usually those patients that are associated with, if you have high eosinophilia and you have visceral involvement and you have a history of patients um, or kids that, you know, have pica and they're eating dirt and everything, um, then start thinking of Toxicara. So I associate it more with animals. So. Um, and uh, you can either treat them with albendazole and sometimes they just get better on their own too, depending on the severity of it. Um, diagnosis, do Toxicara antibodies. Those are better than actually seeing the organism within stool. All right. Okay. So I think that, at least from a roundworm standpoint, that wraps things up. Um, so in quick review for the um, at least... Helmets, um, the roundworms. We talked about pinworms, hookworms, whipworms, um, or the stewy worm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Trichinella, strongyloides, and even Ascaris. Um, so I think, David, having said that, let's jump to um, the platypus organisms or the platyhelmets, right? Yes, think the of flat platypus, ones. the flat ones, right? So that's the tapeworms and the flukes. But let's go ahead and we'll just start with, um, you know, at least the flatworms or the tapeworms first. Um, so remember, the platyhelminths or those flatworms, those are the cestoids, which are the tapeworms, and the trematodes, which are the flukes. Okay? Um, so do you remember if I were to, let's do some little bit more word association. So if I said the pork tapeworm, first of all, I'm going to give you, is it saginata, tinea saginata, or tinea solium? So if I tell you the pork worm or the pork tapeworm, David, what do you think? Is that tinea solium or tinea saginata? Solium. Solium, good. Remember that because it tends to come up a lot and all of a sudden you get hit with that where you're like, gosh, is it saginata or is it solium? Most of the time it's solium, uh, but think pork solium. Um, and it has the two clinical entities. It has um, basically where it grows within the intestines, um, but then you also have um, cystosarcosis, neurocystosarcosis with new onset seizures. Um, and most of the time, these are immigrants that come from Mexico, Central, South America, um, or who, um, who is from a household with an immigrant from other countries. Um, but I think some of the characteristic findings of these, um, you know, are these single or multi-cysts, which then progress to calcified granulomas. And I'll say that again, single, multiple cysts, which then progress to calcified granulomas. Compare this to some of our lesions we saw with taxoplasmosis, because remember we talked about immigrants having toxoplasmosis. Um, but with new onset seizures and, you know, these new cysts within the brain, more widespread, um, think neurocystor sarcosis um, compared to toxoplasmosis, which is more enhancing um, lesions. And those are some pretty big buzzwords. Usually they'll give some kind of uh, eating pork, um, immigrant status, uh, seizures, like you said, or they may give you a picture of CT with some cysts on there. So um, certainly... Some keys, some keywords there to keep you on the um, solium path. Exactly. And David, do you know how you how we would actually treat these patients? Uh, no, I don't remember actually. 
Um, so it's one that I think is, uh, you know, it's, it's, I think it's pertinent to know. It's praziquantel um, or niclosamide. Mm, praziquantel. That, praziquantel. That does sound familiar. I think it might have been in there. It could have been. So I could have got it on multiple choice. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank God for multiple choice questions, right? Um, so uh, I actually think that that's actually a really, um, and as you said too, David, these are really important things to know with neurocystic sarcosis. Um, so history is key. If you have an immigrant with new onset seizures, these cystic lesions, think neurocystic sarcosis, treat with um, you know at least the praziquantel. Sometimes these patients will likely need steroids as well because they'll have surrounding edema too. So mm-hmm. keep that in mind too. Um, if they have the neuro symptoms, if it's just intestinal, you can usually just get by with uh, um, just one agent. But corticosteroids likely need it. Okay. Most of the time too, it's not usually a question. The when you look at the images, it's very characteristic, and the radiologists are really good at really pointing those out and the differences too. Okay. All right. Um, so, David, what is our last section? We finally got to the last section of the, you know, at least um, helmets. Um, and so for the flatworms, you know, we talked about solium and saginata. Um, what about these, you know, the last group? What are they called again? Uh, those are going to be your flukes. The flukes. Before you get there, though, I, I think that we, we talked about solium, but we didn't really go into saginata uh-huh. as far as, if I remember correctly... This one's actually associated with beef. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And sorry, I jumped ahead there. Yes, so that's the beef tapeworm. So as we talked about before with the word association, pork tapeworm, think solium. Beef tapeworm, think saginata. All right. Very good. All right, um, now we can talk about flukes. All right. Your favorite, right? Apparently. Well, tell me, can you name um, a couple flukes that um, come to mind at least? Um, no, There's no pressure, David, but can you think of you know two different flukes i can think of one for sure and what's that schistosoma and that's just fun to say right schistosoma. It is. there's actually a variety of schistosoma species the one that you need to know is um or that the, our listeners need to know is schistosoma hematobium and what does that generally infect what area of the body that's the only reason i remember it because it's <laughs> it affects the bladder and it can cause hematuria and well that makes sense though right because you it say does. that it's hematobium it's almost like schistosoma hematuria right right and think of it that word way. association <laughs> you guys are welcome so schistosoma hematuria think of it that way and it causes it it causes bladder infection and it causes you know at least um, hematuria and some of the risk factors associated with it include swimming in endemic waters um, and then what's also another really important um, consideration is that infected children early on in life they do have an increased risk for bladder cancer as adults All right, so the other species just you need to be aware of, Schistosoma mansoni um, and Schistosoma japonicum. Um, there's really nothing else that you need to know about those that's more related to ID boards, the specifics of those um, species. Um, but just know that Schistosoma causes acute Schistosomiasis. And then um, do you know another name for this? And you probably heard this before, David. Um, but when I say acute Schistosomiasis, do you associate that with another word? Uh, I have a feeling I'm about to. Oh, you're <laughs> That's your answer. It's Katayama fever um, is sometimes a buzzword that, uh, that'll that come up a lot too. You know, we've talked about like all these other things too and associations. Um, I did not you know, have like that. Kelazar associ- with yes. uh, Lishmaniasis. I did not have that association previously, but now I do Katayama fever, fever which is I, I wish I knew more history about that, meaning that the um, origins of that word, but I'm sure it has something to do with the area that, um, you know, most people were infected in. I can That's imagine. usually within two months after inoculation. Um, most of the time you'll have fever, you'll have that lymphadenopathy, and what's characteristic is these patients will have diarrhea and the hematuria. Um, what's interesting, too, is that schistosomiasis, 
um, can actually cause hepatosplenomegaly. And um, sometimes we'll have cases with elevated um, liver transaminases. Um, and, uh, you know, if they have the right history, we'll start thinking schistosomiasis. Um, and we would actually send an ova and parasite because you can usually see if you can at least find the eggs um, within that sample. Um, what's interesting, too, is that sometimes for chronic infections, of course, we see more of the liver transaminitis, but I have read about cases where they do develop cirrhosis and even just esophageal varices, which is almost like some of our cirrhotic patients that come in on on the adult side. The one thing is, is that all the other stigmata of alcoholic um, liver disease or cirrhotic liver disease, they don't have. Just think of esophageal varices and liver cirrhosis with schistosomiasis. So it's pretty serious. Yeah, and, you definitely. know, at least with a re, you know somebody that's an immigrant with persistent fevers or hematuria, always think that. Um, and uh, What's amazing about this is uh, treatment. What do, what do you think we treat with? Since most of flatworms, we treat with the same thing. What do you think, David? Yes, this is the the, the praziquantel. Excellent. Praziquantel, we usually do it for one day, um, but sometimes that doesn't get the developing worm. So then sometimes you have to treat, you know, a month later. Um, and uh, I think that's, you know, pretty routine. Um, the last um, fluke that we're going to talk about that's part of the trematodes um, is uh, Clonorchis sinensis, um, and this is the Chinese liver fluke. And, of course, it's endemic in the Far East, um, and this is what you get from raw fish. And uh, what I think is really important to know with Clonorchis is that it's associated with biliary obstruction. Now, I can't eat sushi either. See, there you go. This is... I'm about this is why. This is why after after both of these parasitic, you know, at least talks, you guys don't want to eat anything else, right? So hey, this is this is part of it. Um, to be honest, it's just funny now because even when I'm at home and with family, I'll refuse to eat certain things just because of this too, and they think I'm crazy. So if only they knew, right? <laughs> um, well, actually, guys, that actually or that wraps up. I think the most important things. Now, granted, there are other um, at least clinically relevant helmets that I think are important, but I don't think that are really necessarily associated with, um, you know, at least um, what's pertinent for the boards. Um, and we just don't see them that often. We really cover really all of them. So if we were to do just a quick review, um, David, I know we talked about the helmets. We talked about the protozoa before. Um, but again, do helmets, do they replicate within the body or outside the body? They replicate outside the body except for strongyloides, yeah. which replicates inside the body. Remember we talked about the autoinfection, and that's the one that's associated with the hyperinfection and sometimes can have disseminated disease and have CNS lesions. Remember what you treat strongyloides with? Uh, ivermectin. Ivermectin, very good. Now, helmets, do they generally have eosinophilia or um, do the protozoa generally have eosinophilia? No, helmets have the, per- have the good. eosinophilia. Good. And we talked about the um, nematodes, the roundworms. Um, so within that group, we talked about pinworms, hookworms, whipworms, the stewy, you know, at least worm, yep. um, trichinella and strongyloides, ascaris. And then for the platy helmets or the flatworms, right, we talked about um, the cestodes, um, the tapeworms, and the trematodes, which are the flukes. Um, so I'm going to give you some buzzwords, all right, and you tell me. Um, basically, I'll give you a word, and then uh, we'll do a little bit of word association games, all right? All right, sounds good. Okay. Cutaneous larva migrants. That would be nicator, hookworms. Good. What about if I said muscle pain, ingestion of bear meat? Uh, that's going to be trichinella. Good. What if I said rectal prolapse with eosinophilia? 
that is going to be whipworm or trichuris. What if I said rectal prolapse, no eosinophilia, chronic diarrhea, and a patient in daycare? Shigella. Shigella, good. Mostly Shigella sanii, too. Remember, there can be some other um, more, um, let's just say, do I want to say pathogenic or, um, you know, just uh, more clinically, you know, at least, uh, you know, um, I, let's just say that uh, with, there's different species of Shigella, and sanii is the most you know, at least I think benign. Um, there can be ones that are more serious. Um, what if I told you um, hemoptysis with shifting infiltrates? What would you say? Loeffler syndrome. Loeffler syndrome, and what organism or what nematode is that associated with? Scars. Very good. And then, um, what if I told you um, pork tapeworm? What comes to mind? That would be tenia solium. What about beef tapeworm? Tenia saginata. Saginata. What if there is, what if I have a, um, a Mexican immigrant that's coming in with new onset seizures and has cystic lesions in their brain on MRI? What are you thinking? Neurocystic sarcosis. And is that solium or saginata? That is solium. Right. Especially if they were exposed to the pork and so forth. Um, and then let's see if there's, what if I told you um, visceral larva migraines? That would be uh, toxocariasis. Or Very Toxicara. Good. Yep, Toxicara. Those are the kids that eat dirt and so forth, too. And uh, what if I told you, um, what if I told you hematuria in a new immigrant um, from Africa? Um, what are you thinking in a prolonged fever with um, eosinophilia? I'm thinking schistosoma. Schistosoma, and it's hematobium, but what we said, schistosoma hematuria, right? Exactly. <laughs> and what are they at risk for, too, if they're chronically infected with schistosoma? Uh, bladder cancer. Bladder cancer in the future. Um, and then what if, uh, what if you are suspecting, um, first of all, you know, patients that are eating raw fish and come in with biliary obstruction and have been tested for hepatitis and have gotten ultrasounds and look pretty clear, but they have eosinophilia, what are you thinking? Chinese liver flukes. What's that also known as? Uh, clonorchis. Clonorchis. It's just fun to say, right? It clonorchis is. sinensis. Schistosomiasis is the best. Schistosomiasis. Well, you already know some of the bacteria I love, but that'll be for another day, right, <laughs> that I'd love to say. Um, and what do we generally treat most of our tapeworms with? Uh, a bendazole du jour. No, pro, sorry, prosequantal. Exactly, exactly. Our other so. worms is a bendazole yep. du jour. Very so prosequantal for the tapeworms. Very good, very good. So you are, David, I think you're ready. You are on it, and I hope <laughs> our listeners are too. So, All um, right. Well, yeah, that actually concludes everything that I have here, which I think is truly clinically relevant. So hopefully this has helped you. And um, any other take-home points, David, from your end? Nope. I think you guys should rewind, listen to it again. We tried to summarize at the end. Um, go back and listen to the protozoa talk as well um, for some more information on parasitology. Dr. Schneider, we really appreciate you coming and sitting down with us today. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be here, Dave.